Matthew chapter 18, verses 7 through 9 and 15 through 20. If you'd like to stand, you can stand while we read God's word, and then we'll jump back into it. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your right hand causes, or if your right hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled and lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It'd be better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Okay, now jump down to verse 15. Okay, so we're going to skip that, the parable of the lost sheep there. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will, shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Father in heaven, we thank you for... Um, Jesus, we thank you for the forgiveness that we find in him. We thank you, Jesus, that you change us, that you make us new, that you change our lives, that you um, transform us into the image of, of your, your, your own righteousness. And Father, we ask that you would help us, God, to flee from sin. God, help us to see sin as it really is. God, give us wisdom. Lord, and how to navigate through this passage, how to do this well. Uh, God, we, we want to be active and obedient in what you have told us here. But God, we also want to be careful of doing this wrongly, of, of harming the church in any way or harming others in any way. And so, Father, help us to move through this this morning with just clarity from your spirit and, and obedient hearts from you. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can be seated. All right, so to, in order to tackle this this morning, here's what we need to do. We need to kind of pull up to about 10,000 feet and take a look at chapter 18 from a bird's eye view, okay? It's going to be really important. So here's what we see as we kind of pull up and just look at chapter 18 from a big picture view. What we see is the first, chapter 18 begins, okay? It begins with a passage on radical humility, okay? So if you're here last week, you know we talked about children and, and what Jesus says about children. Here's what Jesus said, essentially. He said this. He said, you can't even get into the door of the kingdom. Like, you can't even get in the door. You can't even get into the kingdom unless you humble yourself as a child. If you remember last week, we talked about what that means is childlike dependence and trust on God. So it's really, we come saying, God, I've got nothing to offer you. I'm not bringing anything as a bargaining chip here. God, I'm coming to you saying, I'm desperate in need of you. I'm receiving from you all that I need. And then as we receive God's riches, then we immediately look around for the needy to pour it out on. Okay, So that's kind of a, a basic summary of, of the beginning of chapter 18 about how the Christian life is lived. It's lived by us coming to God in simple childlike faith saying, God, I need you. And then as God pours out his riches on us, we turn and pour it out on the needy. Now, let me tell you how chapter 18 ends. If you come back next week, you're going to see we're going to be here. Chapter 18 ends with what I believe is the greatest single passage on forgiveness in the Bible. Okay, I, I believe that. It is a beautiful, masterfully 
written and told parable on, on the lavish forgiveness that God has given us, okay? So if you're a believer here uh, this morning, that means you've been joined to Jesus and God has forgiven you in ways that would stretch our imagination, okay? So we've been given this lavish forgiveness by God and so the rest of chapter 18 is gonna be talking about how we ought to give that away to others, okay? So do you got the two bookends here? So chapter 18, if we summarize it, it begins with, Radical, lavish humility, and it ends with radical, lavish forgiveness, okay? Humility and forgiveness. Now, what's in the middle is surprising, okay? You ever had a donut that way? What's in the, in the middle? You're like, weren't expecting that, right? Okay, what's in the middle is surprising. What's in the middle is, boxed in between these radical humility and radical forgiveness, is this passage that Jesus demands that we deal with sin, Okay, that we actually practically deal with it, like actually going to our brother's house and talking to him about his sin, urging him to repent and pleading with him and praying with him to turn away from sin, getting in somebody's business. Can you think of anything more unpopular than that, huh? Can you think of anything that we'd like rather not do than that? Absolutely, and for a lot of people, it doesn't make sense to them how Jesus can begin with this radical humility, we're to be these kind of humble people, and we're to be these kind of forgiving people, and yet in the middle, Jesus is like, and you also got to get up and go to that guy's house and try to plead with him to get out of sin, okay? They're like, that doesn't mesh. You know why? Because when our society thinks about humility and forgiveness, you know what we think about? Letting things slide, right? Like, oh, you know, that person's living in sin, they've turned away from God, they're running the wrong way, but you know what? We're humble, forgiving people, so what that means is we just, we just you know, sin and let sin, just let's not say anything, let's, let's, just, let's just let it go, you know, humble, forgiving people wouldn't bring that up, right? Well, not according to Jesus, okay? Not according to Jesus. Actually, in Jesus' mind and, and the truth that he's given to us, radical humility and radical forgiveness actually lead to you and I being serious about sin, okay? Now, in order for this passage to make sense, you, you really have to agree with something, okay? And, and it's this truth right here, that sin is the worst thing, that it really is the worst thing. If you, if you don't believe that, then actually probably everything I'm gonna say, the rest of the message is not gonna be for you, okay? But if you, if you believe what Jesus tells us here, that sin really is the worst possible tragedy, to live in sin, to stay in sin, to be unrepentant from your sins is the worst possible thing. If you embrace that, then the rest of what Jesus says actually makes really good sense, okay? Now, now think about what we've already learned last week about sin. So in verse six, here's what Jesus said. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus is really, uh, he, he can create a word picture like nobody else, can't he? You know, Here, here's what he's saying. He's saying it'd be better to have a 10,000 pound rock shackled around your neck and be thrown in the Pacific Ocean. That'd be better than to cause somebody to fall into sin to cause somebody to live in unrepentant sin. Jesus said that'd be better. Can you imagine like somebody saying, hey, you know what? I'd rather have that. Give me the 10,000 pound rock and the shackle and dump me off in the ocean. I'd rather have that than fall into sin. Jesus is saying that's how bad sin is. And then if that were not a graphic enough picture, he goes on in verses eight and nine to, cre to create this picture about our own sin. He says, if your 
hand or your foot cause you to sin, you ought to cut it off. You ought to get a meat cleaver out, you know, whack, you know. I love that it says throw it away, too. Like, what else are you going to do with it, you know? Yeah, cut it off, and then you got it, and you're like, take it over to the trash, and, and you throw it away. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, get it, get it. This, I don't know, what would you do with your eye? Ice pick? I don't know. You get in there, gouge it out. I mean, these are graphic, horrible pictures. And Jesus is saying, that is how bad sin is. Like, sin is so bad that it's better to do those things. It's better to cut off your hand or your foot or gouge out your eye. It's better to live blind and crippled. That's better than living in sin. Okay, now, it's obvious, and, and if, if you've been with us through Matthew, you know Jesus has already used this image of chopping off your hand or gouging out your eye. He used that in Matthew 5, right after he talked about adultery and sexual sin. And, and so we've already kind of covered that, but let me remind you kind of what Jesus means here. He doesn't mean that that's an effective way of dealing with your sin, okay? Please, if you've already got your pocket knife out and you're sawing, stop right now, okay? We'll go, we got a first aid kit in the kitchen. Jesus does not want you to do that. You know why he does not want you to do that? Because it's not effective, okay? If you have an anger problem, okay, if you have an anger problem and, and you get furious with people and you punch them out, you know what cutting off your right hand will do? It'll just make you get better with your left, right? Like, like you'll, you'll have a better left hook because you'll use it more, right? Because here's what Jesus has already told us throughout the Gospel of Matthew is that sin comes from the heart. Doesn't it, right? Sin, sin comes from the heart. He's told us that numerous times already in the Gospel of Matthew, that sin is a heart problem. It's an unbelief problem. It's not actually a hand problem. No, nobody punches people out because their hand has their own business, right? There's nobody that's like, man, I really want to love you. Pow! You know, oh, man, I didn't mean to do that. You know, my heart was to love you, but my hand. No, no, that, that's not true of anybody, right? Sin comes from inside of here, all right? So Jesus is not saying that cutting off your hand or cutting off your foot or gouging out your eye actually stops you from sinning. What he's saying is that's how bad sin is. That's how bad it is to live in sin. The message here is sin is horrific. The message here is sin leads to horrible, painful, tragic things. And so it would be better to have any of those other tragic things happen to you than to be, in the words of verse 8, thrown into the eternal fire. In the words of verse 9, thrown into the hell of fire. There's two pictures there. Fire, one, uh, uh, fire that's conscious, painful torment. And then the other word is eternal, okay? Conscious, painful torment that never ends. Minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia. It never ends. It is forever. Jesus is saying that's where sin leads, and so we ought, of all people who believe Jesus, we ought to take sin seriously. And so if we take sin seriously, then it makes sense, that verses 15 through 20, that we'd be willing to go after our brother or our sister in Christ, or maybe even in our family, when they are stuck in sin. Somebody we care about, somebody we love. It's worth it. Now, what kind of sin is Jesus talking about? Okay, let, let's, let's, let's try to fine-tune this, okay? So what kind of sin is he talking about? First of all, he's talking about unrepentant sin, all right? Jesus is not talking about somebody who fell into sin and they've repented and they, uh, they're walking with him now. They've turned away from that sin and, and, and it's in their past. He's not saying, hey, you ought to go to their house and beat them up over that deal. No, we, we believe 1 John 1, 9. We believe as a church 
First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we believe that as far as the east is from the west, this is Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. We believe that there is forgiveness in Christ. right? And the sins that are in the past that you have repented of, that you put your faith in Christ, guess what, guys? They're gone. right? Nothing more needs to be done. Jesus has paid the price. If you have repented, if you're believing Christ now, trusting Him, then those are gone. They're away. So this is not like somebody somebody falls into sin and, and, and they've repented and we still need to go. No, we don't. Okay? This, this is sin in which somebody is choosing to live in it unrepentantly. Second of all, what kind of sin is it? What In the context, actually, in the specific context, is sin against us. Okay? That's, that's how you would know about it is because the sin was against you. But, but let, let's clarify. Sin that's against you, if it's truly sin, is also against God. You know why? Because all sin is against God. All sin is, the, the root of all sin is unbelief in God. Anytime you sin, you can trace that back to not trusting God. It was interesting, I was, I was reading with some guys in 2 Samuel 12 this last week about how Nathan goes and confronts David on his sin with Bathsheba, his adultery and his, his murder of, of Bathsheba's wife, or Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. And it's interesting that when Nathan confronts David, God begins to speak in 2 Samuel 12. And God tells David, he says, why have you despised me? Isn't that interesting? He says, why have you despised me, David? Why have you hated me? Now, now David sinned against Bathsheba in having a, an adulterous relationship with her. And then he sinned against Uriah in having an adulterous relationship and in killing him. Okay, And yet when God confronts David on that, God says, why have you hated me, David? Why have you despised me? After all that I've given you, why have you despised me? In other words, all sin is against God. David actually says that when he's confessing the sin to God and getting right with God. In Psalm 51, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. All right, and so, so even sin against others is also sin against God. And here's what I would say. Any sin against God eventually leads to a sin against others. I was trying to think, are there any sins that are just against God, but they, they don't actually affect anybody else? I, I'm not sure. Um, maybe sins of thought. Okay, but here's the deal. Sins of thought, we won't be confronting those, will we? Because we don't know those, okay? Please, please don't, don't go tonight and go to somebody's house and say, I was watching you during the sermon, and I think you was thinking bad things. And so I'm, I'm here to, to ask you to repent of that and to plead with you to stop, you know. And you're like, how do, how, do you, how do you know I was thinking bad things? Well, your face, it just looked, you know, contorted, you know. Like, hey, maybe that, maybe it's just gas, or maybe, you know, I, I mean, I had a tummy ache, or maybe, you know, I had a headache, or maybe I just didn't feel good, or maybe I was worried about, you know, right? Like, so we, we, don't, we don't confront people on their sins of thought. But you know what's interesting about sins of thought? If you don't deal with sins of thought, so let's say you got it, you're angry, you're unforgiving against somebody, and it's in your head, if you don't deal with that sin, what's going to eventually happen? You're going to act on it, right? What, what's going to happen if you're lustful? You're going to eventually act on it if you don't deal with that. So, so even those sins work themselves out. And so I, I think we could package this up and say the context is known sin against you or others. And, of course, all sin is against God. Now, here is a crucial point. Do not miss this next point. If you miss this next point, then don't, don't even try to obey this because you'll do it wrong, okay? What are we aiming to do in going to our brother about his sin? Okay, so what's, what's our goal? You need to know, what, what am I aiming to do? So in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him your fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. What, what are we aiming to do? The simple answer to that is we are aiming to restore our brother. Okay, the, the phrase that Jesus uses is gain him back. 
right? Gain him. If you gain your brother. In other words, he's going in the wrong direction. He, he, he's, he's, he's going in unrepentant sin. Yeah, and to gain him back is to turn him back to God. That, that's, that is the goal, okay? Now, please hear me. The goal is not your personal justice, right? Here's where this passage has been misinterpreted and done wrongly to the degree that it's almost ruined it for the church, okay? It is not about your personal justice. This is not somebody sinned against you and you're furious and so you're gonna go give them a piece of your mind and you're gonna bring a couple of your friends with you and they're gonna give them a piece of their mind and if they don't sufficiently repent, then you're gonna go tell the church how bad they are. No, that, that, that is again, you're, first of all, you're never gonna gain your brother back that way. But second of all, that's against the entire New Testament. Right? Remember how I started this sermon? Chapter 18 starts with radical humility and ends with radical forgiveness. Okay, so for you to have this kind of heart that you're like, man, I am mad, I am angry, I want justice, so I'm going to their house. That is not the spirit in which Jesus speaks these truths. In fact, think about, think about, think about what we've already covered in the book of Matthew, okay? So Matthew 5, verse 39, says, Jesus says this, if they slap you on the one cheek, what do we do? Go to their house and chew them out. No, you turn the other also. Matthew 5.40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, what do you do? Let him have your cloak as well. Matthew 5.41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or how about these? Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I love this part. Bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven him. You see, the Bible commands that we be forbearing people, that we be people of grace, people of forgiveness. Again, people of radical humility and radical forgiveness. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul is unpacking church discipline, he says this to the believers. The believers in Corinth were actually suing each other in the civil legal courts And he says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul said, it'd be better to be defrauded. It'd be better to be wronged than to embarrass the church in that way by taking out your personal grievance. All right? So the spirit of the New Testament is not about your personal justice. It is about people who you love intervening in their life to keep them from the horrors of unrepentant sin. Are we all okay on that? Please, please I, I, need you to, I need you to see this in the right context. This is not, you get mad at somebody and so you're going to their house to chew them out. This is, somebody is in sin. Maybe that sin was against you even. But your concern is not your justice because you're going to forgive them and you're going to be humble. Okay, Your concern is them living in sin. They're, again, sin is the worst. And so you're going to them to try to restore them back into the faith, to try to restore them back into fellowship with God. Okay, so, so Paul packages the words of Jesus really nicely in Galatians 6.1. So please listen. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. You see, Paul is, Paul is basically taking the words of Jesus here that we find, and he's encouraging a church to do just that. What are you going to do? You're going to restore them. 
Now, two weeks ago we talked about spiritual warfare. I don't know if you remember that, if you're here for that. We talked about the devil's plan to basically destroy us. Now, now the devil, here's, here's, here's the deal. He does not want you going after people who are in sin. Okay? So it's the devil's plan that people fall into sin and they stay there. Okay? So this whole idea that Jesus is bringing up, that we ought to care about people to the extent that we would go after them, he does not want you to do that. Okay? So he's, he's going to do... He's going to do one of two things to a church, okay? He's either going to push you toward passivity, like, hey, it's none of your business. You know, humble, forgiving people, we just let these things slide. You know, it's embarrassing. It'd be uh, awkward. It might cause waves. It might cause trouble. So we are not, we're not, we're just going to act like it didn't happen. We're just going to let people fall into sin, stay in sin. We'll pray for them, but we're actually not going to take any action to bring them back. Okay, so that, that's, one, that's one way that people will, will, will sin or churches will neglect this. The other way is that churches will go off the rails and they'll do this in a legalistic, self-righteous, mean-spirited way. I actually, I actually talked to a lady just, it was about what, a week ago, week and a half ago. And, and, and again, she's out, she's out of church right now. And she's out of church because her church did this really badly. Like, like they came to her house, but you know what they came to her house about? They came to her house about things like wall decor, you know? And, and they're like, I've seen this done with white wall tires. I've seen this done with, you know, dress. And, and, and in other words, things that were not biblical things, okay? In Paul's day, you know what it was? It was where you buy your steak, okay? Have you ever wondered why there's chapters in the New Testament written on where you buy your beef? You know, and we all read those and we're like, what in the world? I buy mine at United. You know, what? what's the big deal? I buy mine at Walmart or I, I have mine butchered. You know, you know okay, in Paul's, in Paul's day, it was a big deal because there were, there were, there were temples that, that they sacrificed meat to and then they put it out on the street and sell it with the vendors and, and, and it was cheaper. It was a lot of times better. But, but there were some Christians who were like, man, if you buy one of those steaks that was sacrificed to an idol, man, you're insane. Man, you're you're. You're out, man. We, we, we can't have any fellowship with you. And then there are other Christians that are like, hey, there are cheaper ribeyes there, you know? And idols aren't anything. Like there's, uh, an idol is a stone statue. It's a demon. It's nothing. It's nothing compared to our God, right? And, and so Paul, what Paul ends up saying is, look, this is not a clear-cut issue. And so don't judge people on it. You can have personal convictions, but, but don't force those convictions on others. And try not to make anybody stumble, right? He gives us clear, okay? So when, 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 whenever a church takes this passage of Jesus and begins to apply it in non-biblical areas, you know, what, you know what that does? It gives all the rest of the churches a bad reputation, right? And so now, now we're afraid. We're afraid to actually go after anybody because we, we don't want to be like that. That's just the devil's tool to keep people in sin. We should care about people enough that we will not let them slip away into habitual day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year sin. We don't want them to stay there. So how do we do this? Okay, here's our instructions. They're real simple. We're just gonna walk through them. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Okay, step number one, we go to our brother. Now, now, there's a point here that we need to remember. You're going to have to go. You're actually going to have to go. You're going to have to go to your brother. You know why you're going to have to go? Because people who are living in habitual sin, here's the deal. They don't go to you. Have you noticed that? 
In general, when people are living in rebellion, they don't want to talk to you. They actually, if you have an accountability relationship with them, if you have any kind of relationship where you're speaking truth in their life, they don't, they don't want to see you. Okay, They're going to begin to avoid you. They're going to begin to avoid those relationships where they think truth might be spoken in your life, into their life. So you're going to have to go. Okay, But then notice Jesus' emphasis here. Go alone. Go have this thing between you and him alone is exactly what the text says. Between you and him alone. You know why that's so important? That's so important for a couple of reasons. Number one, anytime you're dealing with sin, you want to minimize it. You, you, you don't want other people to know. You don't want God to be dishonored. You don't, you don't want other people to, to think badly of this person. But then for your own sake, here's a great test of where your heart is. Okay? If your heart is really to restore the person and not vengeance then you won't tell anybody. Not initially. You'll go, you'll go alone. You, you, know, you know the way this goes down most of the time? Somebody is sinned against, and immediately they are, they are doing this number. That's not my money, actually. Somebody gave that to me to give somebody else. I didn't want you to think I was just pulling out money. Here, here's what they do. Someone sinned against, and, and they immediately get out their phone. And they immediately start, you know, texting their friends. Just want you to know how badly I've been hurt. Someone hurt me real bad, and, and they're, they're terrible. And I can't believe they're that mean. And, oh, by the way, please pray for them. That's why I'm texting you. That's not why they're texting you. You know why they're texting you? They're getting revenge. That, that is our nature, my friends. That is all of us. Whenever we've been hurt, one of the ways that we get immediate revenge is by telling other people. Right? We, that, that's a way to lash out with, without lashing out. It's a way to, to get other people to think badly, other people to, to, to think wrongly of that person. And, and so Jesus is real clear here. He's like, man, the first thing you do is you go and you keep it between you and him alone. See, our sinful flesh often delights in telling other people's failures because it makes us look better. Makes us look more successful, more holy, more faithful. Jesus is between you and him alone. This is not about, it's not about justice. It's about restoration. Now, prayerfully, what happens? Prayerfully, you go to the person. I have seen this. It is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. I've, I've seen this where the person goes. They talk it out. There is repentance. There's turning. There's restoration. And God is glorified, okay? What happens if that doesn't happen? Step number two, okay? Step number two, it says, if he does not listen to you, this is 16, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, now, this is not bringing back up, okay? So again, how, how do we look at this? If, if it's about your justice, then it's like, I'm gonna get a couple other people hammer on you as well. No, no, it's not about justice. This is about asking for help and reconciling. This is about, hey, I was not successful in, 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 in turning this person from their sin, so I need your help. I, I, I need someone else with a different perspective. You know what else this is about? This is about confirming that you're not off base. Okay, please hear that out. No, notice what it says in 16. It says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You see, what, what Jesus is implying here is maybe you're off base in what you thought was sin. There, there's a great proverb in, in Proverbs 18, verse 17. It says this, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Have you ever noticed that? 
Like when you're just getting one side of the story, well, it always seems like that guy's right. But then when you get two sides, oh man, the picture changes here. So one of the reasons you go and bring a couple trusted friends with you, friends, for, hopefully of that person that you're going to, you pick their friends, is, is that when you get there and they hear everything, the friend may say, hey, you know what? You're off base. Not, not the person you thought was in sin, but maybe it's you. I've had this experience over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in mediating conflict and in, in, in marriages. I've, I've had this in marriages all the time where, where a married couple comes in and somebody's like at their wits end ready to you know, call the divorce card on this deal. And, and when they bring the stuff out in the open, it's like, hey, guys, there's no sin here, right? Like there are things that are annoying but not sin. I personally think that when you eat crackers in somebody's bed or chips, that is, you should be flogged, okay? <laughs> My kids will do that. You can't hardly sleep in it after that, you know? And you would think you could just like brush them off. Have you noticed that like cracker chip crumbs, they just pop straight up. You brush and they pop straight up and they come back down and you think you got them all, all and then you lay down in there and they stick, ah! But that's not sin. Does that make sense? That's not sin. That's annoying, yes, but it's not sin. And, th- and there are people that have those kind of conflicts. And, and, but it, a lot of times they just need somebody else there, that second or third person, who says, hey, this is actually not biblically sin. This is just, you know, this frustrates you or this annoys you. I said exactly what I just told you in the first service. And I had a couple meet me at the back. It was, it was great. It's great. I get, they gave me their permission to tell the story. I won't tell you their names. They said I could tell their names, but I'm not going to. Um, but they, they told me, they said, hey, we got a story to tell you. They said, we've been married, you know, 10 years or so. And they said, we had knocked down drag, I mean, just horrible fights over the wife being late. Um, the guy's super like on time, prompt all the time. The gal, the opposite end of the spectrum. And they just have these clashes about them being late. And the guy, finally, he can't take it anymore. So he goes to his pastor. It wasn't me. It was actually a good friend of mine, Galen Cox. I, I know Galen. And so this speaks really well of him. So they, they go to Galen and uh, they pull Galen in. And uh, they're in a room there. And, and he, he guy's like, Pastor, we've got big troubles. We fight about this constantly. It's terrible. And so he says, what's going on? And, and so he tells him, he says, you know, my wife's always late, late to church, late to, you know, late any time we go anywhere, late with kids, you know, always waiting. We have these big knockdown dragouts. And, and, and Galen's like, okay, what else? And he's like, no, that's it. And Galen says, that's your biggest problem? He says, yes, that's my biggest problem. And Galen, he said, Galen put his arm around him. And he said, you are one blessed man. Yeah. Sometimes, right, there's, there's another perspective, you know. He said, you've got a godly wife. You've got a wife who's a great mother. You've got a wife who disciples your kids. You've got a wife who supports you in every way. You've got a hardworking wife. She's late, yes. You know, wouldn't we all like to be on time, you know? Yes, absolutely. It's not sin, right? And so sometimes when you bring in that, one, that sec, two, second or third person, they give you a perspective on the deal that maybe, maybe you're wrong, you know, or... Maybe, maybe indeed the person is in sin. It, it is, they're living in sin. And so maybe that other person gives a, a voice of wisdom that you couldn't give. Or maybe they have a perspective that you didn't have. Now I think we need to pause right here 
Because here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that what Jesus is telling us to do here is so radically countercultural that you're just not going to be able to receive it, okay? Because here's, here's what our culture says. Here's what our culture says. Our culture says it is not your business to be in anybody else's business, okay? It is, you, shouldn't say any, you should never say anybody else is wrong, okay? Now, let me speak to that for just a second. First of all, our culture is terribly hypocritical about that because nobody actually obeys that, okay? Nobody does. Here's what, here's what, here's what they do. Our culture decides, okay, you can't say this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, or this is wrong. You can't say, if you say that, you're a hypocrite, you're a hater, you're a terrible person. Now, you can say these things are wrong. That's, that's all right. You're a hero then. But, okay, who decides? Here, here's what I would tell you. Everybody has convictions. Everybody has opinions, okay? But we're not talking about those in this situation. Here's what I would tell you about your opinions. You're welcome to them but they really don't mean very much, okay? You're welcome to your opinions. They do not mean very much. I would even go so far as to say this. It's fine to share your opinions, maybe, but you should never force your opinions on anybody, okay? Here's what you should do, though. If you're a born-again believer, you should proclaim Jesus' opinions, right? Do you see the difference there? Jesus' opinions, you know what they call Jesus' opinion? Truth, Okay? So if it is in here, it is life or death, my friends. This, this is the word of God, okay? Now, if, it, if it's just your opinion, it's fine to share it. I gave an example. I, I didn't do it in the first service. I did it in the second service. I'm already this far in. I should just do it. The wall. I, you, I don't know. You think all kinds of things about the wall, don't you? You know? You think you ought to have it. You think we ought not have it. You think it ought to be barbed wire. Some of you think it ought to have drones with tasers and shoot people. You, know, you have all kinds of opinions about the wall. I actually think they ought to make it like the wall in China, make it a big, uh, uh, like a tourist attraction. You know, ride your bike from San Diego to Texas. I don't know. You, know, you got all kinds of opinions. Guess what, guys? They're just your opinion, okay? We, we do, opinions do not apply to this text. What does apply to this text? Jesus' word, okay? So whenever Jesus tells me something, that is something that is life or death for everyone. And if I love them, I will, I will tell them what Jesus says. And if you're my brother or sister, when, when you rebel against what Jesus says, then, then I have a responsibility to act on that and try to win you back, try to restore you back to faith. Number three, what if they don't listen to the two people you brought with you. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Tell it to the church. So this is kind of pulling out all the stops. Okay, so you've got a person that is clearly disobeying Jesus' teaching. They claim to be a believer. They claim to be part of the church. Okay, that's why you're going to them. By the way, you don't, you don't go to people that don't know Jesus. <laughs> you should expect them not to follow him, okay? This is, this is believers, okay? So you got believers who claim to be Christians and, and, and they're not following Jesus. They're clearly disobeying Jesus. You went to them personally. You brought a couple people. None of that has worked. And so now you broaden that out. You pull out all the stops. And you send person after person who will plead with them and pray for them and encourage them. And maybe you were unsuccessful. Maybe the elderly woman that was their Sunday school teacher for, for 
10 years as they were a child, maybe that person is the one who has some leverage in their life. Maybe the young man who they once mentored and, and now looks up to them, maybe they'll have leverage. Maybe the group of Christian guys that they hunt with, maybe the Christian doctor who takes care of their family, but you pull out all the stops and you send whoever might have a relationship, a friendship, a gift of wisdom. Maybe, maybe there'll be someone who, who struggled with the same sin who can share a testimony, but you do whatever it takes to bring them back to Christ. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, verse 17 says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what does that mean? A lot of people, when they read that, they, they, they almost, for some reason, jump to the conclusion that we're saying, treat them badly. Question, if you know your Bible, if you know your New Testament, if you know your Gospels, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He treated them really well. Did he not? Are we all in agreement there? He treated them really well. Zacchaeus, Matthew, right? He, he went out of his way to love and gospel those people. But here's what he's saying here. Don't treat them like they're a believer. Treat them like they're not a believer. You got to change your strategy. You got to change the way you pray for them. If you've gone to them, if you've brought others, if the church has gone as a whole, then then. At some point, it needs to be decided by the church, hey, there's a big spiritual problem here, and probably it's that they aren't Christians. Let, let me tell you what is not helpful. And let me tell you who, who's the worst at this. Parents. Parents are the very worst at this. It is not helpful to treat your child as a believer if they don't act like a believer. Does that make sense? And I, I know we want to. Why, why do we want to? Because we can't bear the thought that maybe they're not. Right? But here's, here's what I would encourage you. We just need to leave that to God, okay? And, and if they are living in habitual rebellion against God, if they're living in habitual sin, then, then we need to do what is best for them, which is change our strategy. We need not to say, well, they... They made a decision a long time ago, and I know they're a Christian. I know they're saved. They're just living in continual rebellion. That's not healthy for them. That's not healthy for you. What you really need to do is say, okay, I don't know their heart. Only God knows this, but I know this. They are continually living in habitual sin. They've resisted every, every effort to turn them back. So I'm going to start, start treating them like they don't know Jesus. I'm going to start treating them as if they're not a part of the family of God. And what that means is I, I'm going to pray for them, that they would come to know Christ. I'm going to gospel them. I'm going to speak truth to them. When I have a chance to do something kind for them, I'm going to do it with, with the hopes of, of sharing the gospel and pointing them to Jesus. I, I'm, I'm going to treat them as if they still need to come to Christ. Now let me talk to you as a church. By the way, I know this is a brutally hard sermon, is it not? Um, I'll, I'll just be honest, this is like, on the list of favorites to preach, this is like a thousand down there at the bottom, okay? Um, I'd much rather preach next week's sermon on forgiveness or last week's sermon on children, okay? But, but it's here, and, and as a church, here's what we need to do. We need to make sure we're doing this well, okay? I do not want to be the church that says, we love you, you're our family, and then when you peel off and fall away, we all act like we don't care. I don't want to be that church. But I also don't want to do this poorly. So, so we should continually be praying about, are we doing this the best we can? So right now at Lincoln Avenue, these first steps are, I think, done pretty well. 
for the most part. Whenever someone's plugged in, part of the family of God, probably the, part, probably the difficulty in our church is membership and non-membership are not really clearly defined. So it's a little hard to tell who's in, who, who's committed, who, who says I'm in. Okay? So sometimes that's hard. In other churches, that's easier because it's clearly defined. But in, but in our church, I think we do a pretty good job of trying to care for people, trying to get them into small group so that when they do fall away, we got people that are going after them saying, hey, man, come back. Come back to your marriage. Come back to your, you know, to come back to faith. Okay? I think we do a pretty good job about sending the couple. Now, here's what we maybe do differently than some churches. Okay, my daughter is a, a member of Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C. They actually have business meetings that are closed to the public. They're only for members, and membership is, has a high, high standard. It, it's, it's difficult to some degree to become a member. But once you are, you're held to a high standard. And so during the business meeting, they will review these cases. So they'll, they'll say, okay, we've got so-and-so. You know, they joined our church back in this date, and they did well, but then all of a sudden they went off, you know, fell into sin. Here's what we've done. We sent so-and-so, and then they came back and said, man, they won't repent, and so we sent a couple more. And then they came back and said, we won't, so we sent, you know, a, a bunch, you know. And, and, and then people will ask questions. Hannah said people ask questions from the, the congregation. Hey, have you tried counseling? Hey, 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 do they know about this that's available? Hey, you know, is there mental illness involved? Hey, is there, you know, substance abuse? Hey, is it, you know, and they, 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 they try to really grapple, how can we reach this person? And, and finally, when all efforts are exhausted, they go ahead and formally make a decision. Okay, this person is no longer part of our body. They're no longer, we're going to treat them as if they don't know Jesus, all right? So now, guys, now we change our strategy. And they actually do that in a formal meeting. We don't do that here. Um... Is that right or is that wrong? Man, only Jesus knows that. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe you have the answer that I don't. The reason we've strayed away from that is we felt like maybe in a, in a public meeting, that would be, um, there'd be more chance for this to go wrong. And so what we've tried to do is in that last step when it's go to the church, we've tried to go to their small group first and say, all right, guys, you know that so-and-so, man, they went off the rails here. Are, are you guys making attempts? Are, are, you, are you going after them? You know, we try to pull in friends, try to pull in anybody that might have a relationship, try to get that group that knows the person well to be the ones that go. And then at some point, we, we begin to pray for them as that group as, as if they don't know Jesus. And we need to change our strategy in reaching them. I don't know if we do it as best as we can, but here's what I know. I, I want to do it better. And I, I want to care for people better. It breaks my heart to think that there could be people who were plugged into Lincoln, professed to be believers, went off into, into unrepentant sin. It breaks my heart to think that we'd be the kind of church that doesn't do anything. I don't want to be that church. So I'm, I'm, asking, I'm asking for your help, really, that we would do this well, that we would do this in a way that honors Jesus and cares and loves for people really well. Let's, let's, let's pray to that end. Father, we, uh, we need your help in this. God, this is a, a difficult thing for us. God, it's difficult to keep up with people. It's difficult to know, um, to know our place in this. Father, it's, uh, sometimes it's even difficult to know whether people are in our church or not in our church. Um, Father, we ask for clarity. We ask for just wisdom in this. Um, Father, we pray that our small groups would care for the people that have been entrusted to them really well. 
God, we pray that people will get into small groups, God. Father, we ask that, um, that if there are people here, even this morning, in, in all three of our services that, that need to repent, God, that maybe the call this morning of how serious sin is, how, how deadly it is, how dangerous it is, God, that that would just grip their hearts and, God, that there'd be repentance even this morning. God, that you would, you would turn people away from sin and turn them back to yourself. God, please, please do that in us. Please keep us faithful. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? We're going to sing together.